As the final of our four Advent preachers, my instructions from Caitlin last night for this message was, peace in the midst of chaos, haha. <laughs> what does it look like to find peace in the Christmas story, especially in a world that is suffering a permacrisis, which I think is one dictionary's word of the year, or omnicrisis? How can we find peace? How can we find a refreshing stillness in Christmas? one that is desperately needed as an antidote to the bombardment of anxiety-inducing stuff that fills our news cycles, our social media timelines, and maybe even our thought space whilst we're trying to get some sleep. How to find peace amidst that. I have two points for us this morning about finding peace in the Christmas story. And in fact, I think that the whole of the Christmas story is about bringing peace. I think it's at the heart of what God was up to in this whole plan. And I think that at Christmas we can experience and we can celebrate peace as in the cessation of hostilities. Peace from enmity with God. Put down our weapons. Stop fighting. Be reconciled, especially and foremost with him. And secondly, peace as in that refreshing stillness within the feeling of peace, and it's not a passive thing, peace as in the removal of bad things, it's a peace that is an active presence and a joy, but a wee bit more of that later. So peace, the cessation of hostilities, especially with God, and peace as that stillness that refreshes our souls. Let's begin with a look at the Bible, sneaky preview a moment ago, and verses that are often quoted at Christmas from Isaiah's prophecy written 700 years before Jesus was born. Can we start at verse 2? Would that be possible? I'll read verse 2. It says, this is, oh, well done. Isaiah chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, please absolutely follow along. That would be great. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. This is the NIV. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those who are living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And I'll skip down to verse 6. The ones in between are good as well. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the greatness of his government and peace. There'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And the zeal, or if you like, the passion, the determined, oh yes, of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Isaiah was predicting that there would be a baby born who would be, in verse two, like God switching a light on for people in darkness, a new dawn, a new hope. More than watchmen wait for the morning, do we want the presence of God to show up? A new reality in our lives. So that was the prediction, and that this child would, in verse 6, carry leadership, authority, rulership. We're not just talking a hope from a corner, we're talking about the big, mighty strength of God breaking in to bring rulership. And this human baby would be called... Mighty God. 
That's a big deal. Now, if, if you've heard of Jesus before, then um, pretend you haven't for a moment, right? God, a person. God, a human being. We're talking about a human being, a baby being born, who would be called mighty God. That's a big deal. And would also be called everlasting father. So firstly, a baby born who's going to be called a father. That's big. And everlasting. This baby is somehow eternal. And verse 7, going to rule forever. I mean, like I say, those of us who know that Jesus is God might skip over these verses and hum a Christmas carol whilst we do so. But this prediction is huge. Would have seemed nonsensical without knowing the story of God stepping in in Christmas. In the beginning, John tells us, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's that word that, in verse 14 of John chapter 1, became flesh and lived among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John is trying to represent, yeah, that, that God, the everything God, the Genesis 1 God, the maker, the, you know, the big one. The one, in fact. That one, here, in a tent of human flesh, if you like, becoming human. So, back to Isaiah. This baby being born 700 years before, uh, sorry, this prediction of the baby being born 700 years before it happened was mighty God, was the one through whom we are united to the everlasting Father, was our wonderful counselor, is our prince of peace. Isaiah's prophecy was for much more than a new king of a nation. This isn't good news, Israel. You're going to have a really powerful one, nice hat, big you know, sword and stuff. This is more than a political, even a good news political story. And more than that, there's a wisdom, a might, and a peace that's on a more fundamental level than just having a new government coming into power that was going to do good stuff. The Christmas story is that that little bundle of Mary's baby, God the Son become flesh, Jesus the Messiah, was to change everything by bringing humanity peace with God. Peace with God is at the core of it. Without, without that, the Christmas message just falls flat. In fact, without that, the Christian message falls flat. I've been struck by how many Christmas films, especially the ones that have nothing to do with Jesus, seem to be about... A couple getting together in a cottage or something, and a family being, I'm told, and a family being reunited, maybe after the kid has trashed the house and beaten up burglars. There's a sense of chaos and division, and then, to everyone's surprise, there's a love, actually, that somehow triumphs, I'm told. I mean, they're heartwarming. Do you have a subscription to the Hallmark Channel? Or, no? I'm, I'm just They're heartwarming, these lovely Christmassy stories, but I think it's, it's because they point to something that's a deeper truth. They're a signpost to something that's more real. I mean, a family reunited, a couple getting together, yeah, lovely. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're pointing to something bigger, deeper. 
if you and I and every human being on this planet were loved into being by a God who designed us to live with him and to enjoy his presence and to worship him in a fulfilling relationship, if that is the core of what we're meant to be, then everything else, everything else is secondary to that main purpose for which we're made. If that is the meaning of life, and I think it is, then finding ourselves separated from him, even finding ourselves joining in that rebellion against him, trapped under enemy occupation, having picked up arms and warring against the one who loved us into being, that is the most important problem that any of us and our friends and our family and those around us face. And I also think that that reality would be the biggest thing that would undermine our living well, our ability to love, to have hope or joy, or to have peace, in every sense of the word. But, of course, I suspect some of you know, God didn't leave us in that state. Not only did he shout to us warnings and welcome backs through his prophets, the Old Testament's full of that, faithful listeners to him who wanted to warn the world, ultimately, he then stepped in, not riding a war horse to show Earth's sin soldiers that they needed beaten up, but in humble, vulnerable form as a baby to meet us and show us that he loves us. John's Gospel, chapter 3, records Jesus talking to one of the leaders of God's people who just didn't get it. This is John 3.16. Some of you might have heard of this as well. Jesus, explaining what God was about, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There's a stark warning in those last couple of verses there, and I made sure I included them this morning. Because whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already. That's a serious and important thing to note. It's, it's not some sort of punishment from God for believing the wrong things. It's not like, oh, you were part of that sect, were you? Sorry, guys. Uh, it's not that heart. That's not what God's about here. This is, I hear Jesus is saying, uh, if someone throws you a lifeline and you don't accept it, then you won't get pulled into the boat. And I think that what Jesus is saying is when he shines his light to someone and says, hey, here I am, and the person says, actually, I quite like the darkness over here. Well, it's that. It's not a test that you have to pass to get into heaven of have the right theology, tick the right box. So much as him saying, I'm trying to reach you, please don't choose darkness. God doesn't want it that way. If we go back to verse 16, I'm really testing you on visuals this morning, sorry, pal. If we go back to verse 16, the opener, the key 
part of this message is God loves this world enough to save it at such painful cost. And in verse 17, Jesus wasn't sent into this world by God the Father to condemn it, even if we did deserve it, having joined the wrong army, fought as part of the devil's rebellion. Jesus didn't come at Christmas to judge, but to save us, to prevent us from perishing, to give us eternal life with him, not just eternal existence, but life with him. Is there any peace in the Christmas story? I would suspect, I would suggest rather, that there is an awful lot of, we can put down the weapons now, come home, bucket loads of peace. And for those of us here who have heard God's offer of peace and said, yeah, me please, Lord, I want it in. I want you and I want to live your way. Then God has made peace with us. Despite having been enemies of God, he's forgiven us saved us from separation from him and the consequences of it that we deserve. For anyone who hasn't had that conversation with God, I suggest you do. That would be a really good idea. Best Christmas present you can have. In the letter to the church at Colossae, Paul put it like this. I'm going to pick it up halfway through verse 11 of uh, chapter 1. May you be filled with joy. Where do I get that? There you go. Thank you so much. Fifth line down on the left. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That's a serious cut and paste. A rescue mission, not just to lift us out of a dungeon, like we were a trapped prisoner of war, but to lift us out of the enemy's army uniform that we were wearing and move us over, bring us into a new kingdom, which is a family, to bring us home. And there's more. It's not just like God has let us off for being part of the enemy. This baby Jesus, whose birth we roast a turkey for, grew up to show us what God was really like, And as I suspect some of you know, suffered an unjust and brutal death to remove our sin and guilt from us. And God raised him to life and us with him in that raising to life in order to give that life to us. So we're not just talking about a rescue. We're talking about a restoration. Deep down stuff. Is there peace in the Christmas story? We've been beam me up scottied out of the rebellion against God that had deceived our, deceived our thinking and was bringing us death in all manner of ways and have been moved back into the family home. I had planned to share Ephesians chapter 2 with you, but it was too long already uh, for a reflection. So go and read Ephesians chapter 2 later. It's dead good. Also, the rest of the Bible. <laughs> it tells us that God has treated us like beloved sons, don't worry, ladies. It was in the sense that the sons get the inheritance. We are the beloved children with the inheritance of the father and the full legal rights, the full adoration of a child restored. It's the prodigal son story. There was a clue in it. So this is not just a story of a war stopping, peace in that sense. This is the ultimate story of a family reunited. And God's rescue mission in all its glory begins with God becoming human. 
coming to meet us in such vulnerability to show us what God is like and then to scoop us up and bring us back to him far out of the reach of the raging enemy who would have seen us destroyed. So that was point one. The Christmas story is all about glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests and the offers open to all of us as the angels sang to the shepherds. This is about God making peace with us that melts our weapons and brings us back into his life-giving presence for all eternity. Point two is about one sentence long. That peace, that peace that is the stillness against chaos, or amongst chaos, sorry. The quiet and life-giving rest sense of the word peace amongst the omnicrisis. The peace that Caitlin probably meant when she set this preaching topic. That peace is the presence of God. It is not the removal of bad stuff. It is the active presence of God. That is the peace that is on offer at Christmas. And those two meanings of peace go together. We have peace weapons down to enter God's presence, and in God's presence, we find our peace. I'm not as good as I would like to be at practicing the presence of God. I struggle to silence my raging inner Martha to join Mary just sitting with Jesus. But when I make the time to do it and and achieve sitting still and shutting up the to-do lists and the, oh, have you thought about that pop up? When I actually get to sit and discover that God is present with me and wants to just sit with me and I get to look at him, not usually visually, that hasn't happened to me yet, but if you fancy it, Lord. When I get to spend time looking within my heart into his face and feeling him looking at me, man, that's what I was made for. There's nothing better. That's, I propose to you what you were made for too. The feeling of God's active peace is the greatest Christmas present you can get. The peace of a restored relationship with him and the peace of his presence with you. To say, yes, Lord, I want this time with you. Would, would you meet me? There used to be this thing about don't be religious, have a relationship with God, or I'm not religious, I have a relationship Sure, great, but um, making a practice of repeatedly spending time with him, that's actually quite a good thing as well. But that relationship that the tool of religion can help us to get towards, man, that's gold, frankincense and myrrh. (laughs) So my friends, I have one invitation or challenge for you this Christmas from this message. Alongside the celebrating, the feasting, I hope, under your Christmas, what about you spent 30 minutes of your Christmas day to just sit with Jesus. To receive his smile. To feel his gentle touch of your heart or whatever. Or even a word from him, a specific prophetic word that would bless you. It might sound like a challenge to carve out a whole 30 minutes of your Christmas day, but it's a Christmas present, I promise you. You're welcome. Where's mine? Where is there peace in the Christmas story? It is the story of peace. The Prince of Peace has come to reunite us with God, to be able to enter his presence. And as we enter God's presence, he gives to us the peace that he made us for.